and good morning. You're tuned into KBBI Homer AM 890. The time is 9.03 and it is time for the coffee table. On July 28th, Alaska experienced the largest earthquake since 1965, a magnitude 8.2, triggering a tsunami warning for the southern coast of Alaska, including Homer. On this week's coffee table this morning, we have officials from the National Tsunami Warning Center. I have uh, David Snyder and Dr. Summer Ohlendorf joining me in just a moment. And they're here to answer questions about the warning and advise us on what uh, possibly could have happened. If you have questions for our panelists, you can give us a call, 907-235-7721, or you can email your questions to me at josh at kbbi.org. And a reminder, when tsunami warnings go off, KBBI responds by sharing alert information from NOAA and the National Tsunami Warning Center and updates from local incident commands from the cities of Homer and Seldovia. Just part of the ways that we try to keep you informed here on listener-supported KBBI. And let's see if our panelists are on the line. Uh, Dave Snyder, can you hear me? Yeah, good morning. Good morning, Thanks Dave. For us. And Dr. Summer Ollendorf, can you hear me? I can. Thank you. Nice to be here. Excellent. Thank you both for joining me. So, uh, the big event, July 28th, that great big earthquake that triggered that tsunami warning that uh, evacuated the spit and all other low-lying areas around Homer. Um, let's just start with a, a rundown of the timeline of how things happened, starting with the earthquake. How big was it? How deep? How, uh, how fast did it accelerate the direction of movement? And uh, can you tell me a bit about the geology of the area where the quake occurred and how that may or may not have contributed to a tsunami? I can go ahead and take that one. So this was a magnitude 8.2 earthquake, and it occurred in the area known as the Alaska Aleutian Subduction Zone. So this is a place where two tectonic plates are meeting, and the Pacific Plate is going down beneath the North American Plate. Uh, the plates are always moving with respect to each other, but they get stuck, and when they unstick is when we get big earthquakes. So that's what happened in this case. Uh, this is what we call a thrust earthquake, where the motion was mostly vertical with, between the plates. And those are the type of quakes that are most likely to generate big tsunamis. Uh, so the depth of this earthquake was 35 kilometers at the hypocenter, meaning where the earthquake started. But big earthquakes actually occur on patches of fault, not just at a single point. So there are parts of the fault, both shallower and deeper, that moved during this earthquake. Okay, so uh, tell me a bit about the subduction zone. The, uh, the, if you look at this on a, a satellite map, it looks like there's a great big cliff there. Yeah, it does kind of look like that. Um, so where the Pacific Plate is going down beneath the North American Plate... Uh, the ocean gets a lot deeper in that area, uh, up to about six kilometers. So there's a lot of water to move at that area. And the area behind it, uh, above the North American plate, is quite a bit shallower. So it makes a big difference exactly where an earthquake occurs, um, as far as how much water might be above that quake, and therefore how much water might be moved during a tsunami. Okay. And uh, a couple of different methods that a tsunami could be generated from, uh, from this kind of geology there. Uh, either the, the ground just shifting, uh, going left or right, up or down, uh, or potentially underwater landslides. Is that correct? 
Right. Yeah. The earthquake itself is going to move uh, water. So there will be a permanent shift in the, the plate. Um, and that's how most big tsunamis are generated. But the shaking from the earthquake can also potentially cause nearby submarine landslides or uh, above ground landslides that can fall into the water and cause their own tsunamis. Okay. Okay, well, let's talk. Uh, let's uh, talk about the next step that happened here, which was the uh, the tsunami warning was issued. Now, uh, why was this determined to be an event that could trigger a tsunami? Uh, is any earthquake over a certain magnitude going to automatically trigger a warning and evacuation? Yes and no. Uh, we have procedures set up ahead of time for different magnitudes of quakes in different areas. And we use models of quakes that could happen, as well as historical quakes that have happened to inform where we need to draw certain boundaries as far as what alerts might be necessary for a particular quake. So we only have five minutes to get out uh, our first alerts after a big quake occurs. And there's a lot we don't know at that time. So earthquake information is the best way we have of guessing what the tsunami might look like as far as impacts. Okay. Um, and then uh, with, the, with the tsunami warning when it was issued, um, now we were standing by here at the radio station. I had uh, two members here, uh, two members of my staff here at the station responding and myself and another staff member uh, responding remotely. And uh, we were trying to get reports from some of the areas closer to the earthquake near uh, near Chignik. And uh, so Sandpoint is one of our, you know, uh, there's a public radio station there. And the last couple of alerts that we've had, uh, Sandpoint has been able to uh, provide us with information about what's happening uh, closer to the situation. Uh, unfortunately, this time around, uh, the radio station staff there was... Uh, I'm not sure if they were out of town or if they, they, I don't, they may have just slept through the entire thing, but uh, we didn't get any alerts from uh, Sandpoint's public radio station. What kind of information did NOAA receive from there as far as whether there was a wave? Uh, when did we know there was something to measure? Any, any thoughts on that? Have I lost uh, Dr. Ollendorf? Are you still there? Okay, we seem to have lost uh, Dr. Ollendorf. Uh, Dave Snyder, are you still with us? And I seem to have lost both of my guests. I can hear them on the air. Dave Snyder, can you hear us? Okay. All right, well, we're going to go to a quick dance break and see if we can round up our guests again and uh, get them back on the, on the line. Uh, Dr. Ollendorf, can you hear us? Uh, Dr. Ollendorf and Dave Snyder, can you hear us still? Hey, yeah, we're back. There we go. I'm not sure what happened there. Those buttons working themselves. Okay, uh, were you able to hear my last question that I asked? I, I think you dropped off somewhere around. So I didn't actually hear the question part. Okay. All right. So uh, stepping back a few uh, few inches here. Uh, so we were monitoring our uh, sister station in Sandpoint for information uh, uh, during the uh, during that event in July, and uh, they did not have uh, they did not have anybody on staff able to respond. 
And uh, I'm just kind of curious, what kind of information did the uh, National Tsunami Warning Center have? Uh, any information from uh, closer to Chignik, uh, where the earthquake occurred, um, uh, telling us whether there was anything to measure? Well, we did have seismic stations that we were getting from Chignik and the nearby area. So that was the first information we had. Um, right after an earthquake, the next information that we're waiting for is deep ocean uh, observation systems. So there are sensors called DART that are um, ocean bottom pressure sensors, and those are usually our first measure of a tsunami wave. So we were waiting for that information. Those are pretty far offshore. And um, we also, of course, monitor for coastal observations, but because the water on the shelf is kind of shallow there, uh, the tsunami travel times are pretty slow, and we didn't get our first coastal observation from sandpoints until about an hour and a half after the earthquake. Which, what, what kind of timetable would you expect to see uh, for that from, from that distance from the epicenter? Uh, so an hour and a half is right about when we expected a wave to arrive there. And it, tsunamis are such long waves that it takes time to gather enough information to see whether a certain wave has peaked or it's going to keep going up. Um, so we're talking about 20 minute to an hour long waves and um, it takes time to collect enough wave information to really give us a good sense of what's going on. Okay. Um, and then as we waited out the process, we got uh, updates from Old Harbor and Kodiak and um, sorry, I'm forgetting my uh, uh, geography here, what, uh, what happened first, but uh, as the uh, reports came in from uh, locations further and further out and the waves were fairly uh, insubstantial, um, how, uh, uh, how did that affect how the reporting went, uh, how we kept the alert going? Right, so as we were getting uh, those observations, we were incorporating them into our different forecasting models and adjusting what we thought the impacts were going to be for coastal Alaska. So our first forecast, I think, was issued with our fourth message. And um, at that point, we knew that things weren't going to be maybe as bad as we had originally thought they could be for a, an earthquake of this size. So. Um, we were able to downgrade our alerts, I think, with our fifth message, and then eventually cancel once we got more observations um, that weren't above our advisory or warning levels. Okay. So, uh, so with the warning issued, uh, that triggered the, uh, the evacuation of all the low-lying coastlines, and that uh, included the city of Homer and the Homer Spit, uh, which is a popular tourist destination, uh, hub for uh, local small businesses, and uh, a popular place to camp and hang out at night. So at 10.30 at night when the uh, the tsunami warning went off, uh, you know, most people were uh, bedded down if they were sleeping on the spit, uh, not really uh, prepared to go anywhere. And the uh, local public safety folks uh, started the evacuation, and I believe that started within minutes of getting the uh, the initial alert. Um, they changed the spit to a uh, one-directional two-lane highway and started trafficking people off of the uh, the spit as quickly as they could. Um, 
can you tell me a little bit about the uh, inundation areas um, and uh, answer a question for me about the level of the tide, uh, because this has come up multiple times uh, in our discussions here. Does the level of the tide affect the size of a potential incoming wave? Sure. Uh, I, I think that, you know, uh, as the, the, the yes. tide cycle is high or low, that allows does. a little bit of... Um, so oh. if a tsunami comes in at low tide instead of high tide, it won't flood as far. It won't flood as high. Um, however, even if it does come in at low tide, uh, there are really dangerous currents associated with a tsunami, and those are capable of doing a lot of damage, even for a tsunami that doesn't sound very big or look very big. So even a two-foot tsunami can cause a lot of damage in harbors and coastal areas. Um, so, and, and I was doing some research on some uh, uh, historical uh, earthquakes and tsunamis, and for example, the earthquake in Sumatra was, uh, or rather the tsunami in Sumatra in 2009 was a nine-foot wave, um, and yet it inundated uh, low-lying uh, areas uh, up to an elevation of... Uh, uh, over 30 feet. Um, so is that something that could potentially happen here as well? Uh, well, your tsunami potential will be a little bit different than Sumatra. So I'd point people to the maps that have been produced for Homer and Soldovia and other places on the Kenai. Uh, there's been a lot of work done by the Alaska Earthquake Center to uh, model potential scenarios and come up with an inundation line that kind of represents the most realistic worst case scenario. So when your local fishers are evacuating people past a certain point, they're taking that information into account. Okay. Um, let's see, moving down uh, our list here. Uh, and so information on the inundation areas can be found uh, for the city of Soldovia. You can find that on the, the city of Soldovia's website, and you can find the inundation maps from NOAA for the Homer area on the city of Homer website if you're interested in seeing those. Um, I'll go ahead and pull those images out and post them on our website when we post this story later this afternoon as well. So if you'd like to find that information, then you can find that. Um, now, once upon a time, when I was a, a young lad here in Homer, uh, we used to say that uh, the Pioneer Avenue, uh, 100 feet above sea level, was the, uh, the blue line, the place that you needed to get to uh, during a tsunami warning. And they have sim since revised that uh, uh, considerably, um, showing actual areas that are uh, truly in a low-lying ele uh, elevation and showing pathways where water coming in from the mouth of the bay can uh, inundate across the, uh, the areas inside of Homer proper. Um, what, what changed that? We used to, we used to hear uh, stories of you know, the potential of uh, one of our volcanoes having, a, I believe it's called a phreatic eruption, where uh, it creates a massive wave a uh, thousand feet high washing over Homer. And uh, uh, that doesn't seem to be so much of the conversation anymore. Yeah, there there are some special cases, uh, especially regarding St. Augustine. Uh, if there were a collapse that, that could generate a wave heading toward Homer and Soldovia. Uh, but really what it is uh, is just updated it. modeling and better data. Uh, we work with the uh, state of Alaska and especially the Alaska Earthquake Center, who has some really fantastic maps online. So you can find them very easily by going to earthquake.alaska.edu. And you can see very clearly where the water depth is. Uh, you'll see a 
a yellow line, um, an orange area, and a red area. And click the check boxes on on the right side. And you can look at the lines for Homer. You can look at the lines for Seldovia. And it's, it's really clear cut. Um, and, for example, you can see where most of the spit uh, is in the inundation area. Uh, most of the shops there, kind of right there along the beach, are uh, in the inundation area, but clearly the high school is not. And some of the, uh, the upper roads there are certainly well out of that zone. Uh, so it's, it's a really helpful tool, but all that updated modeling and better information that we have, uh, you know, just better computing power in general, really helps us to see and pinpoint uh, what, that, what that danger zone is. And if you don't have access to a map, you also have some really helpful road signs there in your community. Uh, Homer is one of 13 Alaska communities that is tsunami ready. And that's what those little blue signs are with the wave and the, and the running person is. Um, they, they point to the safe direction of travel there. So it's, it's always a great idea to take a look at those signs, see which direction they're pointing, uh, and certainly follow the traffic off the spit. But, you know, if you're somewhere else in town, just take a moment and realize where you are and think about just for a second where would i go if the tsunami siren sounded right now and it's one of those things like knowing how to uh, uh escape your house or your place of uh, uh employment in the event of a fire uh knowing where to go from your house during a tsunami warning is probably a good idea to know huh At, absolutely it's it's the same emergency drills that we should be doing for all those areas of our life uh, but you know what if I were in Homer that would be something that I would be stressing with my children with my family uh, with my friends is hey you know let's just take a minute and let's just drive the route that takes us where we need to go and let's practice this from some of our favorite places practice makes perfect and we know that is true with uh, any emergency preparedness activities very good thank you um, okay so let's see um, Got a couple of questions about the the event, and then we can uh, turn our attention to the uh, the impact afterwards and uh, some of the responses that we're able to to uh, take part in. Um, so, going back to the the measurements of the waves, um, can you tell me a bit where these uh, wave height buoys are located and how they uh, get information to us? These buoys are pretty far offshore. Uh, they're in deep water. They're past what we consider the subduction zone. Uh, and there are maps online, if people are interested, that show where exactly where those are. Uh, but there are sets of those in both the Pacific and Atlantic. And um, the way they work is that there are pressure sensors sitting on the bottom of the ocean floor. And uh, when those sensors feel something anomalous, they're able to uh, send back higher rate data to places like the tsunami warning centers uh, by satellite. So the buoy part is actually just the communication part of the system. Um, the pressure sensor is what's actually um, doing the sensing. And therefore, those buoy systems aren't direct measurements of wave height. Um, they're converting the pressure to a wave height. So they can see things like seismic shaking. And that's one thing we notice with every earthquake and tsunami event, that people will see the seismic shaking signals online and misinterpret them as tsunamis. So uh, we want to educate people uh, that these systems are uh, sensitive to different types of signals and to use caution when trying to interpret them during a tsunami event. Okay. Um, now, the, the wave height buoy information, that's something that's publicly available, something you can log on to the National Tsunami Warning Center and uh, find, correct? Uh, 
Uh, that's hosted by the National Data Buoy Center. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I encourage people again to just be really careful if they, they do go there to look because you'll see those shaking signals on these buoys uh, almost right away after the earthquake. And uh, knowing that those aren't big tsunami waves is really important because um, even um, I've seen earth scientists misinterpret these in the past. So it takes a trained eye and like for this event, the actual tsunami signals are on the order of, you know, five centimeters. They're, they aren't many meters tall. And in most cases, uh, the deep ocean signals are going to be a lot smaller than uh, what you might see on shore for a particular tsunami. Okay. Um, now, during during the event, the uh, the website for the buoys was uh, inaccessible. Were they were they down? Were we getting that information? Or was it uh, were the servers just overloaded from the public getting on and trying to see what's going on? I, I didn't hear that the, the website has been down. I don't guess we have any information about that. Okay, well, dur during the event, we were trying to access that, and uh, the buoys just kept saying no information, so. Huh. Yeah, I will say that uh, the Tsunami Warning Center gets their information um, a different way, and we try to make sure we get all of our data multiple ways when possible. So we were getting information from the nearby buoys, even if the website wasn't accessible at the time. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, after the uh, after the event, I believe it was just about one forty in the morning when uh, when the alert got canceled and we were all able to, to resume normal programming and those of us who had been awake all night go back to bed. Um, what information was used to determine that the warning was passed? Was it just simply that the the potential for the wave's arrival had uh, had passed? There was no more uh, vibrating or uh, any put any more uh, kinetic energy stored up anywhere. Uh, what, what was the decision there? So the decision was based on the observations we had at the time. Uh, we had, I think, six coastal measurements by then and quite a few deep ocean measurements. And what we were seeing was that none of the coastal waves were uh, yet surpassing uh, what we consider our advisory threshold, which is uh, 0.3 meters or about one foot. Um, and generally, we start seeing tsunami damage at about uh, a 1.5 foot tsunami. Um, so that's what we were looking for. And we also know that the first tsunami wave that arrives may not be the biggest. So there are some uh, kind of fudge factors built in there, uh, knowing that uh, even if we did see waves slightly below threshold, they might be above threshold later. So there's a, a little bit of a judgment call involved in exactly when to cancel. But um, in this case, the tsunami was definitely still going on at this point. It just wasn't big enough to be dangerous. And we did see in this case that uh, some of the later wave arrivals uh, at Sandpoint and Kodiak and all of those places near the epicenter um, were bigger than the ones that we measured uh, during the event itself. There were about 40 centimeters, I think, uh, maximum. And uh, the waves from the tsunami continued to be uh, observed into the next day all the way down the coast in Washington, Oregon, California, in Hawaii. So there, there was definitely an active tsunami still going on. It just wasn't going to be damaging. Okay. Um, and then uh, one of the other things that happened, and this actually happened very early in the event, uh, the Kenai Peninsula Borough's Office of Emergency Manage uh, Management canceled the alert north of Anchor Point. Who made that call and why? 
Good question. Um, and, and this is a, a really good time to point out that the National Tsunami Warning Center is, is more of a, a national entity, and we're warning very broad areas of coastline there. And as we do that, we work with the states, and the states work with their local communities and the boroughs in the case of Alaska, and then uh, downscale a little bit more to the city of Homer and, uh, of course, uh, folks over in Soldovia. So uh, with that, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the decision-making process was for the Kenai Peninsula Borough, but it's important to know that they are in contact with the forecast office in Anchorage, who is helping us in the alerting process for South Central Alaska. And we're in constant communication with the forecast office and the state of Alaska. So uh, each community can structure their alerts and their decision-making that best serves their local communities. And, and we make sure that they they have enough information to make their best decisions okay um can can we uh speculate a little bit is the the bottom of cook inlet is it conducive to uh tsunami traveling up the inlet well we've seen uh for example in 1964 that uh the waves were big enough in homer to I think destroy the small boat dock there. Um, six meter waves were measured in Homer from that event. So um, in general, it's true that uh, the waves are likely to get smaller as they travel up the Cook Inlet. Uh, because of the shallowness of the inlet, it tends to suck a lot of tsunami energy. Um, but certainly down in the Kachemak Bay area, there is still potential for damaging tsunamis. And using every small or tsunami as an opportunity to practice is important. Very good. Um, I have a question from our news director, Jay Barrett. Uh, he is asking, why didn't this strong quake cause a larger tsunami? Is it just chance? Uh, scientists have been wondering that too. Uh, tsunami science is still pretty young and there have been many cases of magnitude eight quakes causing much larger tsunamis. Um, in 2009, there was magnitude 8.1 in Samoa that uh, resulted in the loss of 190 lives. So certainly when we get to a magnitude eight range, that's something we take very seriously as far as tsunami potential. Um, in this case, one of the things that we think contributed to the tsunami not being quite as large as it could have been is that um, the area above where the earthquake occurred is pretty shallow water so there just wasn't enough at, well, as much water volume to move around um, and that probably contributed but if we were to move that quake um, you know towards that that deeper water 50 kilometers, it could have been a very different story. Um, every earthquake and tsunami is different. And we even saw last year in, in 2020, the magnitude 7.6 quake out there caused a tsunami that was bigger locally than this magnitude 8.1 did. So there's a lot we don't know. And um, there's a limited amount of information we're working with at the time that we have to make some of these decisions, which is why it's really important for us to wait for observations before downgrading or canceling alerts. Okay. And I have a question from another listener here, a, a coworker of yours, Chris Holderied, uh, has uh, emailed a question in. Um, she has a question for Summer um, and wondering if you can comment on why the Seldovia tide gauge Observations did not show any evidence of the tsunami wave, while most of the other stations to the west and even east did show the small wave. Does that also indicate that the wave dampened coming into Cook Inlet and Catchmack Bay? Uh, 
Uh, we've done some post-event analysis of all the tide gauge records around the Pacific, and we actually did find the tsunami on the Soldovia tide gauge. Uh, we measured it at about eight centimeters, so that that's not a very big tsunami, but it, it was there, and um, we we have good tools that allow us to remove the tide signal from um, observations and see smaller tsunamis a little better than you might be able to with online data. Very good. Well, the time is 9.31, and this is uh, traditionally the time we take a, uh, a short breather, and then uh, we'll come back with more questions from our listeners. Uh, if you're listening and you'd like to ask our panelists some questions, you can give us a call, 235-7721. You can also email your questions to me at josh at kbbi.org. Uh, happy to take your questions, and hopefully we can answer them here on the air. Uh, Dave and Summer, uh, thank you for joining us. We'll be right back. Support comes from Pier 1 Theater, Homer's Community Theater supporting community voices. Schedules and information on Pier 1 Productions at 226-2287 and pier1theater.org. This is KBBI Homer AM 890. The time is 8.34. You're tuned into our coffee table this morning. I have guests from the National Tsunami Warning Center, Dave Snyder and Dr. Summer Ollendorf, joining us and answering your questions about the event from the July 28th earthquake and tsunami warning, uh, as well as any other questions you may have about tsunamis for our panelists. You can give us a call, 235-7721, and... 
Uh, you can also email your questions to me at josh at kbbi.org. And we do have a few more questions coming in here, and we'll get back to our panelists here. And Dave and Summer, can you hear me? Yeah, got okay. you loud and yep. clear. All right, cut my music a little fast there. but Okay, so... Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about the event, and then we're going to go uh, and uh, look more towards the uh, responses that uh, that places are able to uh, uh, do in these events. Um, so let's see. The there's a question from a listener. Um, do you concern yourselves with landslide potential for tsunamis, and uh, specifically asking about the Gruenk Glacier? Uh, also, Latoya Bay, and more recently, the Berry Arm near Whittier. Um, are those uh, those areas that have potential for onshore landslides into water uh, causing tsunamis towards populated areas? Is that something you keep an eye on? Absolutely, and uh, we're kind of cutting our teeth with the Berry Arm Glacier, but certainly paying attention to things like Gruink and uh, any other location in Alaska that has that potential right now. This is really cutting-edge uh, territory for the National Tsunami Warning Center and uh, really the state of Alaska is looking at this pretty hard as well. Uh, working with the USGS, uh, we're trying to set up a monitoring system for Barry Arm. It, I'd say it's very experimental at this point and uh, trying to factor in things like uh, the stability of the slope which is totally within the, uh, the realm of the USGS and the State Geological Service um, and putting in water level monitors to just give us a fighting chance to know that a wave may have left that that landslide area. Uh, the trouble with this, Josh, is really that, you know, there are places like this across all of Alaska and really down the west coast of North America. Uh, there's a lot of unstable slopes. Uh, there's a lot of uh, places that have those very narrow uh, valleys uh, from retreating glaciers. And it's going to be really difficult to monitor all of those in any substantial way, but we're trying it out with this uh, the Barry Arm situation there uh, with the hopes of giving Whittier at least a little bit of lead time if a wave is moving toward uh, the Whittier area. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, some, that's another thing that uh, uh, I recall going back uh, probably about 30 years talking about the potential for uh, calving or landslide into, the, into Gruink Lake, uh, possibly creating a tsunami that would reach Homer uh, all the way across the bay. Uh, always an interesting thought for the potential. It's kind of coming out of nowhere there. Yeah, it's a challenging situation. Uh, the National Tsunami Warning Center is designed to warn for seismic sea waves, a tsunami from an earthquake. Uh, the landslide situation is certainly a, a known risk factor, but it's just it's not something that we have a lot of tools or ability to downscale to that very local situation. Uh, the good news is it's not a new risk for Alaskans. We, we know that that can happen. Uh, so the warning signs there, you know, if you see something unusual out on the water, uh, pay attention to that. You know your local area better than anybody else. And if you see the water doing something weird, retreating or advancing suddenly, if you hear a loud sound, or even if you just feel that long, strong shaking there, about 20 seconds or more, that's all you need to move to higher ground. Just don't think about it. Take what you got with you and get up the hill and then reassess. You know, wait for some official information. Maybe it was nothing, but the opportunity you have to keep you and yours safe is, is right there in front of you and you have the tools you need to do it. Very good. 
Um, we have a uh, question from a listener. Uh, Catherine uh, is asking, uh, what about the potential sloughing off of the spit that we were warned about in previous discussions? We were told that there would be no warning and it would be underwater and not triggered by an earthquake. So this is even closer to home. The, uh, uh, the, slip, uh, the spit, is it in any danger of collapse? Uh, we do know that there were some slides uh, in 1964 off the end of the spit, and those types of underwater landslide hazards are taken into account in um, the inundation modeling that has been done. Um, so if you're wondering what specific scenarios might look for as far as tsunami inundation, that information is publicly available online. Um, like Dave said, though, th there's some situations where uh, we may not be able to provide much or any official warning. So um, staying alert and knowing where to go just in case the worst uh, case happens is really important. Yeah. Uh, bouncing around a little bit here. Um, is there a chance of an Aleutian subduction zone quake that could propagate a chain of quakes along the fault, much like it did in 1964? I'm not really sure what you're referring to as far as uh, a chain of quakes in 1964, but the 1964 uh, earthquake rupture was really, really large. Um, you know, it was hundreds of kilometers of that subduction zone that, that broke at the same time. And uh, the Aleutian zone is always going to have big earthquake hazards. Um, there's the potential for earthquakes in one part of the zone to change the stress on nearby parts of the fault and make them more likely to move. And that's, you know, kind of what we might be seeing with some of these uh, recent quakes in 2020 and 2021 is that uh, they're all related to each other. Uh, they're in the same area and each quake is kind of changing the, the current state of the fault a little bit and making some areas more or less likely to slip. So um, the, the hazard's always there. Okay. All right. And let's turn our attention to the response in communities uh, during a tsunami warning. Uh, so when the warning is going off, uh, public safety uh, jumps into gear and starts uh, going out to the furthest point of low-lying areas to start uh, shepherding people in towards safety. And like I said, they take the, uh, the spit road and they turn it into a two-lane exit, uh, exit lane and uh, try to get people off the spit as quickly as possible. Uh, however, uh, there were still people evacuating off the spit several hours after uh, after the warning started, and uh, certainly not for lack of motion, because it was a constant line of traffic coming off of the spit. Uh, what kind of timeline uh, do should people have? How long should it take to uh, uh, evacuate an area, and uh, how much potential for uh, escape do you have? Yeah, well, our, our hope is to give any community as much lead time as possible. Uh, I'd say the most ideal evacuation situation for, for us, for your community in mind, would be something that occurs on the other side of the Pacific, say around Japan, right? Uh, that gives us hours of lead time where we could put up a tsunami watch and that says, hey, something's happening. Uh, and then maybe that turns into an advisory or warning. But the point with that would be is you have multiple hours to move carefully, deliberately away from the danger zone. Uh, as we've seen with the, the three quakes in the last, uh, what, 18 months or so around the Chignik area, 
that's a lot more immediate. That's much closer to home. And the lead time there for communities around Homer, Soldovia, and even the Western Kenai Peninsula or Kodiak is really short. Uh, that makes that difficult. And that's why it's important to just know where you need to go, uh, be deliberate in your motions, and, and, and get moving right away at the earliest opportunity once you receive that alert. Um, yeah, it, it's important to know how you're going to get there on foot. You know, maybe driving in the car is not the fastest way to get where you need to be. Uh, bike or ATV, whatever it takes, get, get to that high ground. And there are maps online. Again, I believe the Earth, Alaska Earthquake Center has uh, travel time maps for you. Uh, those are publicly available, and it can help you make better decisions about where you are in relation to where you need to be. But all that, of course, is something you want to do ahead of time uh, and not try and look up there in the moment. Very good. Um, we have a caller on the line. William, are you, are you there? I'm here. Go ahead, William. Uh, by the way, I have a question about uh, the uh, Kachemek which is, uh, are you hearing me okay? Oh, we're, uh, we're hearing you, but you're dropping out. Uh, you want to try that one more time, and if we don't get you, go ahead and give us a call back, okay? Okay. Uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm gonna, I'll call you back. Sounds good. We'll wait for you. Okay, so uh, waiting for William to give us a call back here on the phone. Um, let's talk about the evacuation from the Homer spit. Um, so, uh, as we've mentioned, there were, uh, people in hotels, campers in the campgrounds, RVs in the parks, um, and, uh, also, uh, city equipment at public works, everything below the inundation line. Um, so a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of stuff to move, uh, should that event have, uh, proved, uh, 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 prescient. Um, uh, is the uh, National Tsunami Warning Center concerned that multiple warnings reduce the public's response? And again, we had uh, we had three events basically back to back over the last year. Um, how uh, how much of a risk do we have about crying wolf over this? Oh, uh, huge! I, I think it is is well known in our office and in our tsunami warning program and team across the country that you know nobody wants to push the button for the warning. We understand that this is a serious situation and that we have the ability to make people move and be uncomfortable in their situation. But the idea is that we're doing this to keep people safe because we do expect a risk and we do anticipate that there is some level of danger that can't be described or alerted in any other way. And so we don't take that responsibility lightly at all. Um, so just like any other, any other situation, uh, take another catastrophe, perhaps a large tornado. Um, you know, you might you might get a tornado warning for a tornado that comes near your house but doesn't go through your house. Well, that's that's still really important to know about, and it was important that you took shelter from that, and it's really good that you were safe. And in this case, Homer did exactly the same thing. Uh, followed all the right training, all the preparation that you have as being part of a tsunami-ready community. You looked at the signs, you used the evacuation routes, and you gathered, and not a lot happened there. And that, that's really good. Um, but, but you did the right thing. And from our vantage point, I would say it was not a false alert. There was a tsunami. Uh, there were multiple locations that received advisory level waves, so about one foot or one third of a meter or so. And that really is enough to cause damage and destruction in, in local harbors if that's 
moving through a uh, confined space. You can you can look that up on YouTube and see those those damage uh, videos there. I believe Santa Barbara is one of those. Um, just nasty stuff. So it really doesn't take a big wave to cause a big problem at all. Um, so for, from our side, I would say, you know, good job to everyone that followed your training and preparation because one of these days there will be a, a significant impact there in the community and it will be super important uh, that that training and preparedness is followed through just like you have for the last three times. Great, thank you. Um, let's see, we have uh, Nicole on the phone with a question. Nicole, can you hear us? I can hear you. You got me? Yeah, I got you. Go ahead. So uh, this question regards being out on the water uh, during the tsunami or during the quake warning and everything. I was out in the boat in the Shellacoff Strait by Hollow Bay, and we were just out of range of getting good Coast Guard signals and just out of range of getting good feedback signals. We found out from another boat, and we were in really shallow water, so we moved to deep water. Now, Catchmack Bay is a lot deeper than Hollow, but uh, what is the recommendation for boats to go? Um, you know, you're already on the water. How deep a water should you try to head to? How far away from shore? Yeah, the I'd, I'd say that's that is it's a tricky question to answer because every location out there is going to be a different answer, right? Um, if you're close to the coast and you can get off your boat and you don't have a chance to get to deep water, uh, that's probably your best choice. But if you're, you know, minutes from getting to deep water and you can move further out, that that is the the better choice there, and you probably won't see any impact at all. Uh, I, I think the magic number is about 100 fathoms. And if you can get away from the coast and out to a location that is that deep, then you are you may not even notice a wave coming in. And I'll just add on to what Dave said, that there's a, a maritime guidance document specifically made for Homer on um, best practices for, for boaters during a tsunami, and that's available online on the Alaska Earthquake Center website. So if you want more deep guidance on this, that's a great resource. Great, thank you. And we have uh, Kristen on the line. Kristen, go ahead. Oh, uh, yes. I was wondering uh, during... Uh, uh, oh, I'm getting back. Huh, let's try that. Go ahead. Okay. Uh... During an evacuation, um, do you have problems with people who don't want to leave their property unattended? Is there anybody within the police force and uh, public service sector who keep an eye on people's uh, property until a wave actually hits? Because I could think of a, many people who would, might not want to leave their property unattended uh, during a tsunami. They'd be willing to risk their lives just so that when they come home, they'll have property uh, left, you know, people not breaking in and looting their, their homes or their shops. Hello? Yep. Uh, let's see. Gosh, uh, Summer and Dave, were you able to hear that at all? I, we're having no, some routing issues with question. our audio. Let me go ahead and see if I can uh, uh, summarize that really quick for you, uh, Kristen. Uh, so the question is, is there any issue with uh, uh, residents refusing to evacuate when it's time to, to stay with their property to protect their, uh, their belongings, et cetera? What, uh, what, uh, what do we do when people don't want to leave? 
Uh, I would take care of you and yours and focus on getting uh, the people in your circle to safety. Um, that's a tough question, and you know that, that breaks my heart to hear that that, that could be happening. Um, the best thing we can do is just make sure that people have all the information so that they can make their best decision possible. Uh, know where their risk is in their community, where that inundation line is, know what the travel time is to get to the high ground, and yeah, and, and, and hopefully keep sharing that message there and encouraging people to make a, a good and safe decision. Very good. Uh, let's see, it looks like we've got William back on the line. William, are you there now? I am. Excellent. Uh, how yeah. do I? Sound, sounds fantastic. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm about by the hospital, so uh, tsunami is not going to bother me much. But uh, I do worry about people out there the day, the Weaver uh, Village, I think called Mexico, and uh, and they would be, I'm certain, uh, all inundated by the tsunami. And do, is there a satisfactory warning from for them at the head of the bay. Okay, we lost a little bit about that, but uh, did you get that, Dave and Summer? The question was about uh, alerts for the communities at the head of the bay, Catchmack, Silo, and the Fox River Flats. Uh, did they have uh, alerts out there? Do they have any way of knowing that something could be coming? Right. I, you know, and I'm not familiar with uh, if they have any sirens that reach the head of the bay out there and what their telecommunication setup is there but that would be a really good question for the folks there at the kenai peninsula borough um, and they could work with the city of homer or any other support structures there in that that part of uh, the peninsula to to make sure those communities are online um, one thing that does work when you're not necessarily tied into say the the wireless cell network uh, it is absolutely NOAA weather radio uh, those signals can travel a lot further beyond uh, a municipality like Homer, and they certainly are a first alert. Uh, that message is passed through uh, the forecast office in Anchorage once they get our tsunami alert, and that activates the EAS system and the wireless emergency alert system for our cell phone carriers, and that could absolutely serve its purpose there up at the head of the bay, or really even if you're out on your boat. So let's talk real quick about some of the other methods uh, people could use to uh, to keep track of what's happening. So you mentioned the NOAA, NOAA weather radio, and of course we've got one of those here in the station just in case anything happens to give us an alert. Plus we have the emergency alert system that we broadcast here from the radio station. So if there's any warnings from uh, public safety, state troopers, uh, National Weather Service, NOAA, uh, uh, the White House uh, can all access that system to uh, uh, pass along potential emergencies. Um, how do people individually uh, keep track of things? You know, uh, NOAA Weather Radio is, is hands down, I'd say, our first go-to. Um, you know, and you've already paid for it. It's a taxpayer-provided service. All you need to do is pick up a radio, tune into the right signal there that uh, your local community can help you find there. Uh, and if you don't know, send me an email, send me a chat or something, and I'll, I'll help you find the right signal there. Uh, but another really cool tool that's free on your Android or your iPhone uh, is the FEMA app. And you set that for your local community. Uh, it might work by zip code or, or local uh, location. So you, know, you type in Homer or Seldovia. 
and you can set it up for all manners of, of geohazards. So if you want tsunami alerts, you can just toggle that switch on. If you want to hear about flooding or winter storms, or if you're concerned about driving into Anchorage, you can get a whole lot of different weather type alerts as well. Uh, and again, it's free. It'll buzz your phone, and that's on top of anything like a wireless emergency alert that comes from your cell phone carrier, carrier through FEMA. And so the really important thing is to make sure that you have several layers of information redundancy. Um, just like when you go out in wintertime, you layer up, you've got all the right layers on from uh, skin to coat. Uh, you want to make sure that your warning system is layered for your, for your household. So you've got your, your cell phone alerts from uh, the wireless emergency alert system, but add the FEMA app in there. Add a NOAA weather radio. Make sure that you've got your favorite local websites and Facebook pages bookmarked so you can get to them quickly there. Uh, very easily today I saw the city of Homer has uh, you know alert information ready to go on their website and I see clearly that your station is an information source for emergency uh, information there as well as the website certainly the broadcast and the Homer Facebook page or the fire department Facebook page a great go-to place to get that kind of information so Build those layers out in advance, but uh, also investigate some other ways, like uh, the FEMA app. That's a free resource there, and um, it's really easy to do. You can set it up in less than five minutes. Great. Thank you. And I might also add the uh, Kenai Peninsula Borough's uh, emergency alerts uh, system for your cell phone, something you can yeah. sign up for on their website. Um, They're also very responsive with events and a great way to get information uh, directly from our local uh, incident command teams. Yeah, good stuff. Um, so we are uh, up against the end of our time limit here. We have about three minutes left. Uh, Dave and Summer, I want to thank you for joining us, first of all, and I want to thank everybody who has called in and uh, emailed in questions. I apologize if we didn't get to all of our questions. Um, we'll save those. Maybe we'll have another one of these conversations soon. Uh, Dave and Summer, is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we go? I'll, I'll take a, a quick closing moment to say tomorrow is our shakeout drill. Uh, the 21st uh, at 1021 in the morning, uh, the entire state has an opportunity to practice drop covering and holding on or even practice your evacuation route to higher ground. Uh, this is something that you can sign up for online. Just Google shakeout in Alaska and you'll find a way to sign up. You don't even have to sign up though. We'd love for you to. It helps us know what communities are practicing this. But most of all, it's a really good opportunity to rehearse what you'll do in a big earthquake because we know we're just one day closer to the next one. Great. Uh, Summer, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I just want to emphasize that every earthquake and tsunami is different. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you guys and uh, help you understand the science and warning process a little better so that you have the knowledge you need to make the best decisions for you. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on the coffee table here on KBBI this morning. Uh, I, I, I found that very informative. I hope our listeners did too. And I appreciate you sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks. And this is KBBI Homer AM 890. It is two minutes until 10 o'clock. Line one from Alaska Public Media is coming up at 10 o'clock. And again, I'd like to thank our panelists for joining us, uh, Dave Snyder and Dr. Summer Ullendorf from the National Tsunami Warning Center. Uh, thank you for spending that time with us and sharing your information. 
And just a reminder that when a tsunami warning goes off, KVBI responds by sharing alert information from NOAA National Tsunami Warning Center and updates from our local incident commands in cities of Homer and Soldovia and the Kenai Peninsula Borough Office of Emergency Management, uh, our partners in sharing information with you, part of our mission for public radio and uh, part of what makes your membership dollars go to work here at KBBI. So thank you all for supporting that system here on our public radio station. The time is 9.59. This is KBBI Homer AM 890. Have a great morning.